A, a Christmas, Christmas Carol in Prose. Being a Ghost Story of Christmas by Charles Dickens. The, the second, second of the, the three spirits. Awaking, Scrooge found himself in his bedroom. There was no doubt about that. But it and his own adjoining sitting room, into which he shuffled in his slippers, attracted by a great light there, had undergone a surprising transformation. The walls and the ceiling were so hung with living green that it looked a perfect grove. The leaves of holly, mistletoe, and ivy reflected back the light, as if many little mirrors had been scattered there. And such a mighty blaze went roaring up the chimney, as that petrifaction of a hearth had never known in Scrooge's time, or Marley's, for many and many a winter season gone. Heaped upon the floor to form a kind of throne were turkeys, geese, game, brawn, great joints of meat, sucking pigs, long wreaths of sausages, mince pies, plum puddings, barrels of oysters, red-hot chestnuts, cherry-cheeked apples, juicy oranges, luscious pears, immense twelfth cakes, and great bowls of punch. In easy state upon this couch there sat a giant, glorious to see, who bore a glowing torch, in shape not unlike Plenty's horn, and who raised it high to shed its light on Scrooge as he came peeping round the door. "'Come in, come in, and know me better, man.' I am the ghost of Christmas present. Look upon me. You have never seen the like of me before. Never. Have never walked forth with the younger members of my family, meaning, for I am very young, my elder brothers born in these late years, pursued the phantom. I don't think I have. I am afraid I have not. Have, have you many brothers, Spirit? More than 1,800. A tremendous family to provide for. Spirit, conduct me where you will. I went forth last night on compulsion and I learnt a lesson which is working now. Tonight, if you ought to teach me, let me profit by it. Touch my robe. Scrooge did as he was told and held it fast. The room and its contents all vanished instantly, and they stood in the city streets upon a snowy Christmas morning. Scrooge and the ghost passed on, invisible, straight into Scrooge's clerk's and on the threshold of the door, the spirit smiled and stopped to bless Bob Cratchit's dwelling with the sprinklings of his torch. Think of that. Bob had but fifteen bob a week himself. He pocketed on Saturdays but fifteen copies of his Christian name, and yet the ghost of Christmas present blessed his four-room house. Then up rose Mrs. Cratchit, Cratchit's wife, dressed out but poorly in a twice-turned gown, brave in ribbons which are cheap and make a goodly show for sixpence, and she laid the cloth, assisted by Belinda Cratchit, second of her daughters, also brave in ribbons, while Master Peter Cratchit plunged a fork into the saucepan of potatoes, and getting the corners of his monstrous shirt collar, Bob's private property, conferred upon his son and heir in honor of the day, into his mouth, rejoiced to find himself so gallantly attired, and yearned to show his linen in the fashionable park. And now... Two smaller Cratchits, boy and girl, came tearing in, screaming that outside the baker's they had smelt the goose and known it for their own. And basking in luxurious thoughts of sage and onion, these young Cratchits danced about the table and exalted Master Peter Cratchit to the skies, while he, not proud although his collars nearly choked him, blew the fire until the slow potatoes bubbling up knocked loudly at the saucepan lid to be let out and peeled. "'What has ever got your precious father, then?' said Mrs. Cratchit. "'And your brother, Tiny Tim. "'And Martha weren't as late last Christmas Day by half an hour.' "'Here's Martha, mother,' said a girl, appearing as she spoke. "'Here's Martha, mother,' cried the two young Cratchits. "'Hurrah! There's such a goose, Martha!' 
Why, bless your heart alive, my dear, how late you are, said Mrs. Cratchit, kissing her a dozen times and taking off her shawl and bonnet for her. We had a deal of work to finish up last night, replied the girl, and had to clear away this morning, mother. Well, never mind, so long as you are come, said Mrs. Cratchit. Sit ye down before the fire, my dear, and have a warm lord bless ye. No, no, there's father coming, cried the two young Cratchits who were everywhere at once. Hide, Martha, hide! So Martha hid herself, and in came little Bob, the father, with at least three feet of comforter, exclusive of the fringe, hanging down before him, and his threadbare clothes darned up and brushed to look seasonable, and Tiny Tim upon his shoulder. Alas, for Tiny Tim, he bore a little crutch and had his limbs supported by an iron frame. Why, where's our Martha? cried Bob Cratchit, looking round. Not coming, said Mrs. Cratchit. Not coming, said Bob, with a sudden disclension in his high spirits, for he had been Tim's blood horse all the way from church and had come home rampant. Not coming upon Christmas Day. Martha didn't like to see him disappointed, if it were only a joke, so she came out prematurely from behind the closet door and ran into his arms, while the two young Cratchits hustled Tiny Tim and bore him off to the wash house so that he might hear the pudding singing in the copper. And how did little Tim behave? asked Mrs. Cratchit, when she had rallied Bob into his credulity. And Bob had hugged his daughter to his heart's content. As good as gold, said Bob. And better. Somehow he gets thoughtful sitting by himself so much and thinks the strangest things you ever heard. He told me, coming home, that he hoped the people saw him in the church because he was a cripple and it might be pleasant to them to remember upon Christmas Day who made lame beggars walk and blind men see. Bob's voice was tremulous when he told them this, and trembled more when he said that Tiny Tim was growing strong and hearty. His active little crutch was heard upon the floor, and back came Tiny Tim before another word was spoken, escorted by his brother and sister to his stool beside the fire. And while Bob, turning up his cuffs, as if poor fellow they were capable of being made more shabby, compounded some hot mixture in a jug with gin and lemons, and stirred it round and round, and put it on the hob to simmer. Master Peter and the two ubiquitous young Cratchits went to fetch the goose, with which they soon returned in high procession. Mrs. Cratchit made the gravy, ready beforehand in a little saucepan, hissing hot. Master Peter mashed the potatoes with incredible vigor. Miss Belinda sweetened up the applesauce, and Martha dusted the hot plates. Bob took Tiny Tim beside him in a tiny corner at the table. The two young Cratchits set chairs for everybody, not forgetting themselves, and mounting guard upon their post, crammed spoons into their mouths, lest they should shriek for goose before their turn came to be helped. At last the dishes were set on, and grace was said. It was succeeded by a breathless pause, and Mrs. Cratchit, looking slowly all along the carving knife, prepared to plunge it into the breast, but when she did, and when the long-expected gush of stuffing issued forth, one murmur of delight arose all round the board, and even Tiny Tim, excited by two young crouches, beat the table with the handle of his knife, and feebly cried, Hurrah! There never was such a goose. Bob said he didn't believe there ever was such a goose cooked. Its tenderness and flavor, size and cheapness, were the themes of universal admiration. Eked out by applesauce and mashed potatoes, it was a sufficient dinner for the whole family. Indeed, as Mrs. Cratchit said with great delight, surveying one small atom of a bone upon the dish, they hadn't ate it all at last. Yet every one had had enough, and the youngest Cratchits in particular were steeped in sage and onions to the eyebrows. But now the plates being changed by Miss Belinda, 
Mrs. Cratchit left the room alone, too nervous to bear witnesses, to take the pudding up and bring it in. Suppose it should not be done enough. Suppose it should break in turning out. Suppose somebody should have got over the wall of the backyard and stolen it while they were married with the goose, a supposition at which the two young Cratchits became livid. All sorts of horrors were supposed. Hello! A great deal of steam. The pudding was out of the copper. A smell like a washing day. That was the cloth. A smell like an eating house and a pastry cook's next door to each other, with the laundresses next door to that. That was the pudding. In half a minute, Mrs. Cratchit entered, flushing but smiling proudly with the pudding, like a speckled cannonball so hard and firm, blazing in half a quartron of ignited brandy, and bedight with Christmas holly stuck into the top. Oh, a wonderful pudding, Bob Cratchit said, and calmly, too, that he regarded it as the greatest success achieved by Mrs. Cratchit since their marriage. Mrs. Cratchit said that now the weight was off her mind, she would confess that she had had her doubts about the quantity of flour. Everybody had something to say about it, but nobody said or thought at all that it was a small pudding for a large family. Any Cratchit would have blushed to hint at such a thing. At last the dinner was all done. The cloth was cleared, the hearth swept, and the fire made up. The compound and the jug being tasted and considered perfect, apples and oranges were put upon the table and a shovel full of chestnuts on the fire. Then all the Cratchit family drew round the hearth in what Bob Cratchit called a circle, and at Bob Cratchit's elbow stood the family display of glass, two tumblers and a custard cup without a handle. These held the hot stuff from the jug however, as well as golden goblets would have done, and Bob served it out with beaming looks while the chestnuts on the fire sputtered and crackled noisily. Then Bob proposed, A Merry Christmas to us all, my dears. God bless us. Which all the family re-echoed. God bless us, everyone, said Tiny Tim, the last of all. He sat very close to his father's side upon his little stool. Bob held his withered little hand in his, as if he loved the child and wished to keep him by his side, and dreaded that he might be taken from him. Scrooge raised his head speedily on hearing his own name. Mr. Scrooge, said Bob. I'll give you, Mr. Scrooge, the founder of the feast. The founder of the feast, indeed, cried Mrs. Cratchit, reddening. I wish I had him here. I'd give him a piece of my mind to feast upon, and I hope he'd have a good appetite for it. My dear, said Bob. The children, Christmas Day. It should be Christmas Day, I am sure, said she on which one drinks the health of such an odious, stingy, hard, unfeeling man as Mr. Scrooge. You know he is, Robert. Nobody knows it better than you do, poor fellow. My dear, was Bob's mild answer. Christmas Day. I'll drink his health, for your sake and the days, said Mrs. Cratchit. Not for his. Long life to him, a merry Christmas, and a happy new year. He'll be very merry and very happy, I have no doubt. The children drank the toast after her. It was the first of their proceedings, which had no heartiness in it. Tiny Tim drank it last of all, but he didn't care two pence for it. Scrooge was the ogre of the family. The mention of his name cast a dark shadow on the party, which was not dispelled for five full minutes. After it had passed away, they were ten times merrier than before, from the mere relief of Scrooge the baleful being done with. Bob Cratchit told them how he had a situation in his eye for Master Peter, which would bring in, if obtained, five full and sixpence weekly. 
The two young Cratchits laughed tremendously at the idea of Peter's being a man of business, and Peter himself looked thoughtfully at the fire from between his collars as if he were deliberating what particular investments he should favor when he came into the receipt of that bewildering income. Martha, who was a poor apprentice at a milliner's, then told them what kind of work she had to do, and how many hours she worked at a stretch, and how she meant to lie abed tomorrow morning for a good long rest, tomorrow being a holiday she passed at home. Also, how she had seen a countess and a lord some days before, and how the lord was much about as tall as Peter, at which Peter pulled up his collar so high that you couldn't have seen his head if you had been there. All this time the chestnuts and the jug went round and round, and by and by they had a song about a lost child traveling in the snow from Tiny Tim, who had a plaintive little voice and sang it very well indeed. There was nothing of high mark in this. They were not a handsome family. They were not well-dressed. Their shoes were far from being waterproof. Their clothes were scanty, and Peter might have known, and very likely did, the inside of a pawnbroker's. But they were happy, grateful, pleased with one another, and contented with the time. And when they faded, they looked happier yet in the bright sprinklings of the spirit's torch at parting. Scrooge had his eye upon them, especially on Tiny Tim, until the last. It was a great surprise to Scrooge, as this scene vanished to hear hearty laughter. It was a much greater surprise to Scrooge to recognize the laughter of his own nephew, and to find him in a bright, dry, gleaming room with the spirit standing smiling by his side, and looking at his nephew with a smile. It is a fair, even-handed, noble adjustment of things, that while there is infection in disease and sorrow, there is nothing in the world more irresistibly contagious than laughter and good humor. When Scrooge's nephew laughed, Scrooge's niece by marriage laughed as heartily as he, and their friends laughed out lustily as well. He said that Christmas was a humbug, as I live, said Scrooge's nephew, and he believed it too. More the shame for him, Fred, Scrooge's niece said indignantly. Bless those women, they never do anything by halves and are always earnest. She was very pretty, exceedingly pretty, with a dimpled, surprised-looking, captivating face, a ripe little mouth that seemed made to be kissed as it no doubt often was. All kinds of good little dots around her chin that melted into one when she laughed and the sunniest pair of eyes you ever saw in a little creature's head. Altogether, she was what you would have called provoking, but satisfactory too. Ah, perfectly satisfactory. He is a comical old fellow, said Scrooge's nephew. That's the truth and not so pleasant as he might be. However, his offenses carry their own punishment. And I have nothing to say against him. Who suffers from his ill whims? Himself? Always. Here. He takes it into his head to dislike us and won't come to dinner. What's the consequence? He doesn't get dinner, and it's not a good dinner, I grant you. Indeed, I think he loses a very good dinner, interrupted Scrooge's niece. Everybody else said the same. They all had eaten heartily and had had dessert, and now were by the fire talking by lamplight. Well, I'm very glad to hear it, said Scrooge's nephew, because 
I haven't had any great faith in these young housekeepers. What do you say, Topper? Topper clearly had his eyes on one of Scrooge's niece's sisters. For he had always been a bachelor, and he said, Well, what does a bachelor have to say about such things? I have no right to give an opinion on the subject. Whereas Scrooge's niece's sister, the plump one with the lace tucker, not the one with the roses, blushed. After they had tea, there was music. For they were a very musical family, and they knew what they were about. When they sang a glee or a catch, I can assure you, especially Topper, who could growl out that bass with the best of him and never had the big veins in his head pop out or his face turn all red over it. No, he was good. But they didn't devote the whole evening to music. After a while, they played at forfeits. For it was good to be children sometimes and never better than at Christmas when the mighty founder himself was a child. There was first a game of blind man's bluff, though. And I no more believe Topper was really blinded than I believe he had eyes in his boots. Because the way in which he went after the plum sister with the lace and the tucker was an outrage and credulity to human nature. Knocking down the fire irons, tumbling over chairs, bumping against the piano, smothering himself in the curtains. <laughs> Wherever she was, that's where he was. He always knew where the plum sister was. He wouldn't catch anyone else. If you had fallen up against him, as some of them did, and stood there, he would have made a play at catching you, but never sees you, but would instantly sidestep you and direct himself towards the plump sister. Here's a new game, said Scrooge. One and a half hour, one hour only, spirit. It was a game called Yes and No, where Scrooge's nephew had to think of something and the rest must find out what. He only answered to their questions yes or no, as the case was. The fire of the questioning to which he was exposed elicited from him that he was thinking of an animal, a living animal, a rather disagreeable animal, a savage animal, an animal that growled and grunted sometimes and talked sometimes, and lived in London, and grunted in sometimes, and walked about the streets, and wasn't made a show of, and wasn't led by anybody, and didn't live in a menagerie, and never killed in a market, and was not a horse, or an ass, or a cow, or a bull, or a tiger, or a dog, or a pig, or a cat, or a bear. <laughs> and every new question put to him, this nephew burst into a fresh roar of laughter. And it was so inexplicably tickling to him, he would get up and walk around and laugh. At last, the plump sister cried out, I found it. I found out what it is, Fred. I know what it is. What is it, cried Fred. It's your Uncle Scrooge. Which it certainly was. Admiration was the sentiment, though some objected to the reply that it was a bear ought to have been yes. Uncle Scrooge imperceptibly became so gay and lighthearted that he would have drank to the unconscious company in an inaudible speech. But the whole scene passed off in the breath of the last words spoken by his nephew. And he and the spirit were again upon their travels. Much they saw, and far they went. And many homes they visited, but always with a happy end. The spirit stood beside sick beds and they were cheerful on foreign lands and they were close at home by struggling men and they were made patient in their greater hope. 
by poverty and it was rich. An almshouse, hospital, and jail, and misery's every refuge where vain man and his little brief authority had not made fast the door and barred the spirit out, he left his blessing and taught Scrooge his precepts. Suddenly, as they stood together in an open space, the bell struck twelve. Scrooge looked about him for the ghost and saw it no more. As the last stroke ceased to vibrate, he remembered the prediction of Bob Marley and lifted up his eyes and beheld a solemn phantom draped and hooded, coming like a mist along the ground towards him. Ding dong, merrily on high, in heaven the bells are ringing. Our dramatic reading of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol is part of the Holy Heresy podcast series and stems from the conversations that begin in our live services on Sunday mornings. Each week we explore the growing edges of theological thought, the exploration of the links between science and religion, the challenges of spiritual practice in 21st century Los Angeles, and most of all the joys of sharing community in the creative capital of the world. If you enjoy the Holy Heresy podcast series and would like to support these continuing conversations, visit fccla.org give and follow the prompts. Donations are tax deductible and all gifts support the social outreach, faith-based exploration, and commitment to the arts that is First Church. This podcast is produced and directed by David Harris and Laura Velfragan. A Christmas Carol executive producers include David Harris, Julie Janata, and Scott Simbala, with Julie Janata Director, recorded at Massive Music Studios with Patrick Arthur Audio Mixing. God Rest You Married Gentlemen is played by Christoph Bull on The Great Organs, and Ding Dong Merrily on High by Charles Wood, sung by Laude, directed by David Harris. Voice actors for A Christmas Carol in presentation order include Chapter 1, Sammy Smith, Sharon Lawrence, and Michael Zimanek. Chapter 2, Melanie Edmonds. Chapter 3, Lillian Mottern, Jacqueline Mottern, James Mottern, Carlina Mottern, and Petrain King. Chapter 4, David Harris and Christoph Bull. Chapter 5, Clara Martin and Bennett Martin. Thank you for your presence here today, where all are welcome. <laughs>